The uh, story is told of an elderly couple who, while on a road trip, stopped at a restaurant for lunch, and after finishing their meal, they left the restaurant and they resumed their trip. However, when leaving, the elderly woman unknowingly left her glasses on the table, and she didn't miss them until they had been driving for about 20 minutes. By then, to add to the aggravation, they had to travel quite a distance before they could find a place to turn around in order to go all the way back to the restaurant. And on the way back, the elderly husband became the classic grouchy old man. And he started on her. You know, I can't believe that you could forget those. You'd forget your head if it wasn't attached to your neck. And, you know, and I, you know all this time that we're losing, the extra gas that it's going to take, and blah, 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 blah. How many of you can relate to that show of hands? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, you don't want to do that. They raise their hands. I can't believe it. Anyway, to her relief, you know, they finally arrived at the restaurant, and as she got out of the car, of course, to go in to get her glasses, the old geezer yelled out to her. He said, you know, and one last thing, while you're in there, you might as well get my hat and credit card. I was like, what? What's the point of that? You know, the story clearly illustrates the double standard of seeing the faults of others while being blind to our own. And in our ongoing study through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, we meet a blind man who could see better than those around him who had the gift of sight. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, we find an account where Dr. Luke records for us the perfect vision of a blind man. In Luke chapter 18, we pick up the account at um, verse 31 where we read these words. It says, And he, speaking of Jesus, took the twelve, the disciples, aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. And it came about that as he was approaching Jericho, a certain blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a multitude going by, he began to inquire what this might be. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who had led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he had come near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. You know, there are several truths to be found in this remarkable passage that relates to the perfect vision of a blind man. And we know from our previous studies throughout Luke's gospel that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Uh, It is during this journey uh, that he continues to teach truth and reveals identity to those who had uh, physical sight, but unfortunately were blind at this point still spiritually. And with that in mind, I want to call your attention to us something that is rarely uh, noted or talked about much, and that is in the first three verses, or 31 through 34, uh, we see the courage of Jesus. 
You know, and, and it tell, we're told that he took the 12 aside and he said to them, you know, hey, I want to tell you, we're going to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. It says, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. The third day they will rise again. And they didn't understand yet what was going on. You know, and as I was reading through this, I couldn't help but think about the fact that I, I, I rarely, if ever, hear anyone talk about the courage of Jesus. You know, as, as I have lived, I've noted there's two types of cor- courageous person. You know, the person who uh, just happens to be at a, at a place at a moment in time, and we call these acts acts of heroism or heroic acts or deeds. You're driving down the road, and you see an accident, and you jump out of your car, and you go to a, a flaming car or a building, and you run in, and you, you gra- drag people, and you help them, you bring them out. You, you know, you put a tourniquet on, you, you do certain things. You come across a near drowning, and without thinking, you don't hesitate. You jump in, and you swim over, and you rescue that person person. And, and, you know, when we talk about these acts of courage or heroism, you know, these courageous things that people do in a moment of crisis, a moment of time. But in that particular case, none of those things are planned. None of those things are, uh, the, the downside's not anticipated. The cost isn't really calculated. It's something that is just done because of, a, you know, a, a, maybe an impulsive act to try to help another person in a desperate plight in which they find themselves. And then there's the other type of courageous act. And that's the person who knows going in the price that they're going to pay. They've calculated it. They understand it completely, thoroughly. They know the mission that they're on is going to require a tremendous price that they're going to have to pay. And they still go in to do it. It's one thing to come across a drowning person and jump in to try to save them. It's another thing to come across a drowning person knowing that in the act of saving them that you yourself will drown. You know, it's no question in my mind which is the two greater of courageous acts. You know, the person who calculates it, understands it, knows in great detail what it is that they're going to have to do and still does it. I've had people come to me and say, you know, we really appreciate how courageously you're fighting this battle with cancer. And I look at them and, and I say, you know, I, I think it's, hey, listen, th- this isn't really an act of courage. This isn't something that's courageous. This isn't something that was meditated, thought out, planned, calculated. Uh, this is just something that God has allowed in my life for his purposes. And therefore, how I respond to it is a matter of, you know, attitude and a matter of trusting God and a matter of seeing God, God's hand in every area of life. But it certainly wouldn't be considered, I wouldn't consider it courageous. You know, the person that would be courageous that would say, listen, you know what? I'll take your cancer from you knowing exactly what it's going to do to me so that you will be saved from that particular plight that you find yourself in. Now, that's an act of courage. See, and and I want you to understand, maybe with a newfound significance, that that's the type of courage that Jesus has. See, because he knew in great detail, and he told them in great detail, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to tell you that everything that has been written about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Everything that Isaiah wrote, everything that the Psalms testifies towards, I know it will be fulfilled because, you know what, the Word of God will always come to fruition. Not one dot, not one tittle will pass away before God's Word will be fulfilled. Everything that God promised will happen exactly as he said that it would. And see, and Jesus knew that going in. He said, I'm going into Jerusalem and I will be mistreated. I will be spat upon. I will be abused. I will be crowned with thorns. I will be scourged. I will be whipped. I will be accused of heinous things. Then they will take me and they will crucify me. And they will nail me to a cross. 
And I will shed my blood for the world because that is my purpose. That is my mission. That is why I've come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we'll see that next time as we get to Luke chapter 19. That's the purpose of the mission statement of why did Jesus humble himself and take on the likeness of a man. And he found appearance of a man. He came so that he would be obedient to God's will. That he would die upon a cross. Because that is God's chosen way to buy you and me back from the rebellion of our sins. He knew that going in, and he didn't hesitate to fulfill that purpose. You want to talk about courage, there's some courage. You want to talk about a role model, there's a role model. Knowing that we go into a situation that the price will be paid, but we're still willing to do it anyway. See, you know, otherwise we'd have to run from it. If somebody really knew, and we see that in battle, and we see people who desert, or we see people who run from their responsibilities because they know going in what price is going to have to be paid, and they would rather flee than fight. They would rather run than they would fulfill that mission. And see, and there's a place of high honor for those who are so courageous. And Jesus, I read through this, and, I, and, I, and I'm just struck by his courage. The courage to walk into a situation already knowing in advance everything, every agonizing, excruciating, critical detail, and still do it nonetheless. Who can comprehend that type of love? Who can comprehend that type of courage? But it's one that is laid out for us, and we'll see it. You know, I thought, why, you know, why did he courageously journey towards his destiny? As I mentioned already, I thought of Philippians 2 immediately as I was studying this passage that, you know, he he was obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. He was obedient to the will of of his Father. He said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. God, God the Father, that was his plan to buy back mankind. And so he was obedient. And we also know from Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, one of my favorite passages, that we're, to lay aside every, that we're also to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. We're to run this race with endurance, you know, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and, our, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. We're to consider him who endured such hostility from men so that we don't grow weary and so that we don't grow faint. You know, as I thought about that, why did Jesus courageously go to the cross? Because it was an act of submission to God the Father, the will of God. It was an act of courage. But, he, but, but God's word tells us because he, he endured that for the joy that was set before him. He saw what it would accomplish. He saw that the pain was temporary and that the glory was eternal. He saw that the suffering was for a moment in time, but it wasn't worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And that's exactly what Paul wrote to us in Romans where he said, I don't consider the sufferings of this life even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. So he said, it's just a temporary glitch, but look at the wonderful results. He endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. To accomplish the purpose in which he came. And so as we think about all this, I want you to also recognize and understand that Jesus never talked about his suffering without also talking about his resurrection. He never left it at that. He never said, I'm going, I'm going to be mistreated, and I'm going to be spat upon, and I'm going to be abused, and I'm going to be put on the cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried. He didn't leave it at that. He said, then three days later, I will rise again. 
And then he told him to go meet me in Galilee, and I'll see you there after we accomplish, uh, accomplish this, and we've got work to do after that, so I'll see you then. He never got hung up on the temporary nature of pain and affliction. And, 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 and as I was thinking this, how can you and I live more courageously for God's kingdom and His purpose in this life? And it becomes very easy because we always stay focused on Jesus. His obedience, our obedience. His submission, our submission. His pain, but also His glory. The exaltation that comes with being obedient to the will of God in our life will will pale in comparison to what God has for us as we honor Him in how we live and conduct our lives. Saying, you know, if you want to live courageously, there'd be a whole lot more courageous people in God's kingdom and in His army today if we took our eyes off of the pain of the moment and put our eyes on the glory that's to come. And then we use the pain of the moment, the trials of the moment, the struggling of the moment as just a platform or a testimony to a world that has no hope. To those who can't see beyond the pain, who can't see beyond the moment, who can't see beyond the suffering, who can't see beyond this CT scan or this MRI result or this blood level marker. They can't see beyond that because they don't have any hope that goes past that. And as I've always said, you know what, that pain is temporary and it's, and it's God's way of the most generous thing that a loving God could ever do to any one of us in our life is to use the pain and suffering of this life to put our eyes on eternal things and off of temporary things. Because if you go through this life and, and everything you want is at your disposal and you never have any pain, you never have any suffering, you never have any affliction, and just one day you just die and then you appear before God to be judged... What a rude awakening that will be. But if God in His graciousness and His mercy and His kindness used the pain and affliction of this life to open your eyes to spiritual things, what a wonderful God that He is. And that's the message of the blind beggar. God used the temporary affliction of blindness to open the eyes of his heart to a greater spiritual reality. Wow. How awesome is God. How awesome is God to further reinforce this importance of pressing on or forward focus, notice the name that Jesus gives to himself as he explains the events that are about to take place. He calls himself the Son of Man. And this name is used 82 times in the Gospels, and it is derived from the seventh chapter of Daniel. And what a wonderful passage this is when we understand it. Jesus is the one who calls himself the Son of Man. And the significance of this cannot be overstated. Jesus said that he is the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 we read these words. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days God the father. And he was presented before him. And to him the son of man was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Isaiah goes on to say, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. You will call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And Jesus now 
goes and refers to himself, instead of using the personal pronoun I, he calls himself the Son of Man for the significance of letting those who are blind to his identity be revealed to the reality that he is the promised one of God, one like a Son of Man who is coming in the clouds, who will have a kingdom, God will establish it, and to him will be given dominion, everlasting dominion, followed up by Philippians 2 and says to Jesus, a name has been given above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Why was Jesus so highly exalted before men? Because he humbled himself. He was obedient to the Father. He went to the cross. He gave his life. He was raised from the dead. And because of that, he is highly exalted and to be praised. And he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, I am the Son of Man. Instead of saying, I will go to Jerusalem, I will be mistreated, I will be mocked and spit upon, and after they have scourged me, they will kill me, and on the third day, I will rise again. He was saying to them and fulfilling Scripture, everything that was written about by the prophets will happen, and everything that God has been telling you about as far as His promised Savior and Redeemer is found in me because I am He. What a wonderful reality that, what a wonderful revelation and reality that is. That Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the fulfillment of Daniel's vision in chapter 7. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one that Isaiah wrote about. And the government shall be upon my shoulders. I am the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, a wonderful Counselor. I am He that you have been waiting for. Why can't you see that? And yet we're told they were blind to it. They were physically gifted with sight and they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see it. And yet at the same time, we're told that it was hidden from them. And so we recognize and understand that it was hidden to them. And yet the disciples were blind to this truth. It was hidden from them. They did not comprehend it. And today we have four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And our understanding still requires the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, Ephesians says we are to pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts. You know, in contrast to the incomprehension of the twelve, their spiritual blindness, we come to the perfect vision of a blind man. Notice in verse 35, we're just... You know, we're just plainly told that he was blind. It came about that as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a certain blind man was sitting by the road begging. He was blind. He couldn't see. Physically, he couldn't see. And because he couldn't see, he couldn't go work. And because he couldn't work, he couldn't earn a living. And so, therefore, he was was relegated, delegated to to the task of begging from other people. He was broken. He was humble. He was dependent. He was helpless. And so, every day he would get up. Same time every day, he would probably get up and he would work his way down the road with his cane or with his stick. He would pass probably certain houses or certain dwellings that he would go by, beg for some food in that particular time of the morning and perhaps get a handout from the same people. He would work himself over to the gate of the city. He would take up his position where he would beg for money and his needs to be taken care of. He would hear... Donkeys coming in loaded with melons to go to the, to, to the, you know, to the, to the, uh, uh, the produce area, uh, to the marketplace. He would hear women that were coming out with their, with their uh, you know, clay pots to go to the well to get water, to get water for that particular day. And there would be a lot of mundane activity that would take place day after day, day after day. It was the same routine. And yet as we look at this, 
he had time because of his blindness to develop his inner man. He had time to develop his inner spirit. He had the time that you and I don't have because we are cursed with physical sight that distracts us from spiritual truth. We can sit around and watch TV and sporting events and we can watch you know, this thing and that thing and we can go about our hobbies and we can go about our day and we can read various things and we have been gifted with physical sight. We have the ability to do all of those things. But don't ever forget that a lot of those things are what distracts us from what's really important that is our inner spirit, that inner man. This guy had a lot of time to think about what was really important in life. This, time, this guy had a lot of time to think about what life was all about. This guy had a lot of time to think about, you know what, what's going to happen at the end of this life and what do I have to look forward to? See, this guy had a lot more time than you and I have because we are cursed with physical sight. Now, at the same time, it's a blessing and we praise God for it, but I want you to understand a lot of the blessings that we have, if we're not careful, can become the greatest hindrances from seeing God and who He is. Because we aren't as dependent. We don't see ourselves as helpless. We don't see ourselves with great need. Until something happens in our life that God gets our attention and says, Oh no, this is bigger than you, isn't it? And you go, Oh yeah, it is. Praise God. That's good stuff. That's a great place to be. And you notice the cry of the man in verse 36 through 39 as he goes through it, he starts to ask a question. Hey, you know what? He heard the multitude going by in verse 36. He says, and he began to inquire what's going on. I mean, can you imagine? It was the same thing every day, same routine, same noises, same women's voice, same donkeys, same this, that. And it's like, wow, there's something different today. Because his blindness heightened his other senses. And his sense of hearing led him to understand something different is going on today. Unlike any other day. And he said, what's up? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. And I want you to notice that those who were gifted with physical sight saw Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. It was a geographical association. Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, is coming through. And the blind guy is thinking, Jesus of Nazareth, I heard about him. Because I listen intently when I can't see. You ever notice a person that, you know, that can see physically and you're talking to them and they're not even looking at you, you know, they're not even listening to anything you're saying? It's kind of like you want, you know, say, would you look at me when I talk to you? I mean, how many times have that conversation with your children? Uh, ladies, how many with your husband? Preach it, brother! You know, but it's like, it's the way it is. It's like, you know, it's like, well, hey, I'm talking to you. Would you look at me when I'm talking to you? Well, in, in this particular case, man, you know, he can see, but he could hear really well. And he listened intently. And when people would pass through, they were talking about what they heard about this guy named Jesus and all the things that he was doing. They heard about how he healed lepers. They heard about how he opened the sight of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. They heard about the fact he raised people from the dead. And so this guy had a real good understanding of who Jesus is. And he cries out to him and said, Son of God, you know, he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. He had perfect vision. He came to the right conclusion that Jesus must be, based on everything I've heard about him and what he has done, he must be the Savior of the world. 
Because God promised that when the Savior came and Jesus read from the scrolls of Isaiah and said, this has been fulfilled in your midst, what would be fulfilled in your midst? Hey, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, all illnesses and afflictions and infirmity will be healed. That was Jesus' calling card. His miracles were signs pointing to himself as the promised one of God, the Savior of the world. And you know what? This blind guy understood it and recognized who he is. The physically gifted those who could see, Jesus of Nazareth. The blind guy whose heart was open, Jesus, son of God, son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't crying out for money or bread, folks. He was crying out for what was the most important gift that Jesus gives. God's mercy, his grace, his love and his forgiveness. Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the sympathetic crowd said to him, Hey, shut up and get out of the way. Sometimes I wonder if we fit that mold of that crowd. I hope we don't. I pray that I never do. I pray that we don't as a church body. A person who wants to see Jesus. A person seeking Jesus out that we would ever become an obstacle or stumbling block because of our callousness or our lack of compassion that it causes them not to see Jesus. And you know what I love about this man? The same thing that, you know, you got to love about the lepers who came and the paralytic's friends who brought the paralytic on the, on, the, on the stretcher and the same thing about every person that had any illness whatsoever. They didn't care what the crowd said. They realized their only hope was in Jesus. Folks, don't ever let any human being keep you from coming to the foot of the cross because the only place that you will find God's mercy and forgiveness is at the foot of the cross, trusting in Jesus' death and the power of his resurrection on your behalf. No matter who gets in your way, it'll never be an excuse on judgment day because it's about you and God alone. And so he's saying, hey, you know what? And he yelled out even more. I guarantee you, I've told you in the past, if I knew there was a doctor who could cure my cancer, I don't care how many of you get in the way, try and stop me. I'd, I'll run you right over. I don't care how big you are. I don't care if you're male or female. I don't care. It's like, you get in my way, I'll run you over. And you know what? We need to have the same type of passion for pursuing God, righteousness, as we do for pursuing earthly things. Don't you dare get in my way in my pursuit of godliness, righteousness, holiness, and to be in the presence of God Almighty. Don't you dare get in my way because I won't let you. And don't you let anybody else either. And the only people who get stopped are people that aren't really passionate about the pursuit. See, how about you? He knew his only hope was in Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. He was blind, and he knew he was blind. And he knew the only person that could open the eyes of the blind in the history of the world was Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, Son of God, Son of David. Have mercy on me. There's only one thing worse than being blind, and that's being blind and not know you're blind. There's nothing worse than that. And there are many people in the world today who are blind to their own sin, Blind to their own rebellion, blind to their own lost condition, 
and blind to what will be their impending judgment because their eyes have not been opened to see how they fall short of the glory of God. There is no greater position, worse position to be than to be blind and not even know that you're blind because you can't do anything about it. There is no greater position to be in life you know, from a disadvantage than having some physical illness and discovering it upon your autopsy. I would rather see it in a scan or MRI than have my wife find out about it after the fact. Because then everybody goes, well, if we would have known, maybe we could have done something about it. And see, and the whole purpose of God's laws is to reveal to you and I that our condition is hopeless because every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us that are perfect. There are none of us that are right before God. Every one of us have violated His commandments. We haven't always honored God. We haven't always kept Him first. We haven't always loved Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We haven't always, you know, loved others as ourselves. We've coveted. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've lost our temper. We've spoken and used God's name in vain. I mean, if I haven't hit you yet, if I talk longer, it's coming. So just get on right now with me and understand that, you know, you're guilty before God. And, and the whole purpose of God's Word is to help you to see your own blindness so that you can say, what, what can I do about it? And he said, you can't do anything about it, but you can throw yourself upon the mercy of God, trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and God will heal you of your sin. He will forgive you. He will show you mercy. And that's what the blind man was saying. Son of David, Son of God, have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner. And I'm blind. I can't see. And you're the only one who could take care of my greatest need. You know, we need to recognize and understand that this man did not see Jesus geographically. He saw Jesus theologically. And he yelled out in a loud voice, Jesus, Son of David. It was a messianic title that every Jew would understand. It was constantly used by the rabbis to describe the, uh, the, the, the impending uh, Savior who would come. They held that since the Messiah would come, he would be a second David, that he was sometimes simply even called David. And so he knew and declared openly the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Chosen One of God. And when they said, shut up, he said, no, you shut up. And he yelled even louder. There was no secret service believer here. There was no undercover agent for Jesus. This guy stood out in the crowd and identified Jesus before the world as the Savior, the promised one of God, the only way to get to heaven. And you and I should be declaring the same thing because there is no other hope. He is our hope. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one will come to the Father but through Him. And the question I have to ask is, have you trusted in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? The Bible says, if so, your eyes are open to who He is. See, the blind man believed Jesus was the Messiah and shouted it loudly. Have you come to believe that Jesus is the Savior, and not only the Savior of the world, but more importantly, your Savior from sin, judgment, and hell? If so, then how can you keep that a secret? He has called us from darkness to light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done so. 
I guarantee you, and I see it all the time, people that run around, just they praise their doctors because, you know, other doctors wrote them off. This oncologist closed his notebook in this folder and said, go home to die and go to hospice care. And they go to another doctor who doesn't give up on them and gives them hope and a reason to continue to fight. And they begin to treat them and they make progress. And they run around, they're telling everybody, they're referring this doctor to everybody. And rightfully so. If somebody pulled you out of a burning car or a burning building and saved your life, would you not go around and at least go back to them, thank them, and then go around telling everybody what a heroic and courageous deed that this person did on your behalf? Jesus went to the cross. He died for you and for me who believe in Him so that we, never, we will not perish but have everlasting life. He shed His blood for our sins. How can we keep that a secret from anyone? How? I'll tell you how, because it's a strategy and scheme of our enemy. That's how. And you know what? And we need to be alert to the strategy and schemes of the enemy who wants us to be quiet about our Savior. We're to proclaim Him from the mountaintops, from the valleys, from our places of business, from our schools, from our playing fields, from our neighborhoods and in our families. We're to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in order to be saved from the consequences of our sin, we must repent and believe upon Him. Notice this. And I'll tell you what, if this doesn't tell you a whole bunch about the compassion of Jesus, I don't know what will. But in verse 40, Jesus stopped. I was going to title this message, The Day the Sun Stood Still. Because I want you to think about something. Jesus, so many of us, we're so preoccupied about all these other things. And, and I hope, and I hope you've seen this, and I, and I hope that I convey this to you. But you know what? I will never allow the future to rob me of what I'm supposed to be doing in the present. Well, I don't want to bother you because I know you have your treatment on Tuesday. Well, today's Sunday. Today's Saturday. Today's Wednesday. Don't remind me about Tuesday. I'll deal with Tuesday when it comes. But you know what? I have a responsibility while I'm still alive to continue to live. So I will never allow future things to crowd out the responsibility of today's living. And I, and I learned that from our Savior. Because Jesus, as He's going to Jerusalem, He could have been so inundated by the thoughts of His suffering, what was going to happen, that He couldn't want, hey, listen, don't bother me. I got, I got my, I'm preoccupied. And He could have been critical. Don't you realize how many times I told you guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crowned with thorns, and, and I'm going to be scourged beyond, beyond recognition. And then they're, they're going to take me and crucify me and you're bothering me about this little item? Oh! He didn't do that. He stopped. The sun stood still and demonstrated his compassion on a man who could not see. He could have said, you know what? My problems are so much bigger than yours. But he didn't do that. And neither should we. Every person, whatever their needs are, no matter how trivial you may think they are, if they're important to them, they should be important to us as God's people because they're important to our Savior. And how much more so is He our advocate today than even in this illustration that we have, this truth of how He said, you know what? Bring the man to me. I got time for him. Not only do I have time for him, but I specifically came this way for him, and I got another guy who's going to be running up a tree. We'll talk about him next week, but I got to go see him too. So everything's right on schedule here. Everything's right on schedule. But His compassion is overwhelming. And our compassion needs to be the same. 
And he said, what do you want me to do for you? Could you imagine any sweeter words than that from the God of this universe who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think? As I've gone to him in prayer, I, I think of these words. Chuck, what do you want me to do for you? Well, to be honest with you, since you already know, to be transparent with you, since I can't hide anything from you, I'm really thinking I'd like you to remove this cancer from me. But I also recognize and understand I've read enough of your word and I know enough of your character that, you know what, my will isn't your will and my thoughts aren't your thoughts and my ways aren't your ways and you may have something a whole bunch better planned than me and no maybes about it, you do. And so, therefore, I don't really know how to pray, but, I, you know, I get down to, well, Lord, you know what? Your will be done. But I'll ask you anyway, because I never want you to say, hey, well, you could have asked. <laughs> Should ask. It's like, no, I, I asked. You know, I learned that from Paul. He asked. He asked three times. God said no. And he said, okay, great. My, you know, my, my strength is perfected through your weakness, weakness. But at least Paul knows that he, he wouldn't be held guilty of, you could have asked. You know, I don't want to miss out on any blessings that God has for me just because I didn't ask for them. But on the other hand, if he chooses not to hand me the blessings I think I should have or the thing I want, then I praise him because I realize his answer is no, I got something better for you. Say, okay, you're God, I'm not. And I praise you for it. But he wanted him to articulate it. And notice what he said, I want to regain my sight. And look at the command of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight your faith has made you well. Isn't that great? Receive your sight. All you got to do is speak the word. That's the thing I just love about the power of God. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God said, hey, pick up your pallet and walk. And he walked. And then God said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of the tomb back to the living. And then God said, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. I'm picking up on something. Nothing's too big for God. Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. I don't know what your situation is. I know some of your situations. And I know to you they seem to be extremely big. But I just want to tell you, to God... He says, come on, try me, test me in these things. This isn't big. But he also says this, just because I don't do for you what you want me to do doesn't change the fact that I'm God and that I could do whatever, but I have a greater purpose and a greater plan in your life. And for those of us, for those of you who may not have ever repented of your sin, entrusted in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, he's saying, I'm allowing this to happen in your life because the greatest issue, the greatest need that you have isn't to be healed from your cancer, isn't to be healed from another physical affliction, isn't to be you know, uh, promoted at your job or given financial success. No, the greatest need that you have is to come into a right relationship with the God who has made you. And so I'm using this to get your attention. Won't you humble yourself today? Won't you, throw upon, won't you throw yourself upon the mercy of God? Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Forgive my sins. 
I trust that you died for me. You rose again from the dead. And, and as far as I know, what your word teaches, and I believe you as my Lord and Savior, I receive you even here and even now. That's your greatest need. And don't let the devil or anybody else tell you that it's anything less than that. See, this man's life was changed. And I was thinking, you know the greatest thing about this miracle? The first thing that he saw was the face of Jesus. Listen to these words. And for you and me too, that will be the greatest of all sights. When we awake from the dream that men call life, when we put off the image of the earth and break the bonds of time and mortality, when the scales of time and sense have fallen from our eyes and the garment of corruption has been put off and with this mortality has put on immortality and this corruption has put on incorruption and we awaken in the everlasting morning, that will be the sight that will stir us and hold us throughout eternity. What a great thought. What marvelous anticipation that the face that we see when the blindness of our hearts is healed is the face of Jesus. See, and lastly, we're told that this man changed in a very real and practical and relevant and visible manner. The change that this man occurred is seen in verse 43, and immediately he gained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. When all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. When you have truly repented of sin and trusted in Christ, there's two things that have to happen in your life. Number one, in closing, your walk will be different. And what walk means is, you know what, the way I live my life is different than it was before. I walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I do what God has called me to do. I don't do wrong anymore. I do right. I used to lie, cheat, and steal. Now I tell the truth and work hard. I used to be self-centered and selfish. Now, you know, I work hard so I can give to those who have need. You know, I never honored God. He never was even a thought in my mind. But you know what? Now he's the first thing, first person I think of. The first thing I think about is, is this pleasing and honoring to you? I coveted and wonder what other people have and now I've learned to become the secret of contentment is realizing that, you know what, Christ living within me is all that I really need. I used to pursue material things and now I hunger and thirst for righteousness and now I find contentment as a result. This man followed Jesus. He went where Jesus told him to go. He did what Jesus told him to do. And we today do the same thing through the Word of God as we, as we search the Scriptures to find out, God, what is it you require of me? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing? And I don't stop these things in order to be right with you. I stop these things because you've already made me right with you and I want to live a life of obedience with you. And so therefore I do these things. And the second thing he's, that, he, that he's different in is in the area of worship. He glorified God. He praised God. We need to do the same thing. And we also need to allow others to worship and praise God with a heart that's right before God and not second guess whether their worship is pleasing to God because it's not how you worship and that is the height of pride and arrogance. And it's wrong before God. 
It just troubles me and breaks my heart that everyone has an opinion about so many things. But when it comes to worship, who are we to say another person is either worshiping God or not? Do we know their heart? Do we know their spirit? Do we know their love for the Lord? Do we know their brokenness? Do we know where God has brought them from and what their background is? And yet we sit in judgment and pass judgment on how we think others should worship and praise? I, I, I pray not. But I sense sometimes we cross that line. This man glorified God. He praised God. And you know, I I just wonder if he was shouting it, if he was raising his hands, if he was kneeling down, if he was singing praises, if he was singing the Psalms. It doesn't tell us how he glorified God, but you know, he did. And so therefore, we realize that, you know what, if you've come to faith in Christ, your walk better be different. Because if any man's in Christ, he's a a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And also, our worship will be different. Why? Because we focus on him and not on ourselves. People who are dead in their sins worship themselves. They worship themselves, they worship their efforts, they worship their works, they worship their stuff, they worship their bank account, they worship their iras, they worship everything about them. They worship their looks, but you know what? God's people glorify God. Are you glorifying God? In closing, what do we learn? First, we must see our need. We've got to pray that God would open the blindness of our heart to see our greatest need is the need of God's mercy and forgiveness. God, if there's anything in me, if there's any wicked way in me, if there's any sin in my life, help me to see it because the more that we sin, the more blind we even become to our own sin, even as Christians. God says, you know what? You need to pray that I'll open the eyes of your heart to your own iniquity. And once he reveals it, that you would confess and agree with God. Yeah, that's right. That's bad. That's wrong. My bad. And I agree with you, God, and I confess my sin and more. And, 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 and on top of confessing it, I repent and I turn from it to do what is right before you. See, once we see our need, we have to recognize that, you know, the son of man, the son of David, the glorious sovereign one of all peoples and all nations. You know, we need to recognize that he is our only hope, which thirdly is that we cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Do you see Jesus as he truly is? Have you called out to him for mercy and forgiveness? If not, today is the day of the Lord. You know, I can't think of the the irony of, you know, every week coming to this church and seeing Henry out back serving donuts. And every, every Sunday he said, Pastor, I want to let you know I'm praying for you. I want to let you know I'm praying for you. And to realize three or four days after that conversation that he beat me to the finish line and he got to see Jesus first. But it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You know, and if it's God's will, some of you may beat me to the finish line. And you don't even know there's anything wrong with you other than the fact that you're mortal and that you're going to die one day. But the timing is all up to God. And that's why he says today is the day of the Spirit. If God is tugging on your heart and, and, and you know you, you need to repent, then you better do it today because this may be your last opportunity. Let's close and pray. Father, we thank you for your word that illuminates our heart. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God, I pray specifically for those who are blind spiritually. And do not see the greatest need they have is to be forgiven of their sins. God, that you would open the eyes of their heart 
to see their true condition and their greatest need is your forgiveness. That they would agree with you even here and now and as they listen to these words, whether it's on a CD or tape or in another form, that God, you would speak to them that they, would re- that they would turn from their sin, that they would turn to you. They would see Jesus as who he is, the son of man, the son of David, the savior of the world, who died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. And in him and him alone is forgiveness found. That it would be a prayer, a simple prayer. Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. God, I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. And to the best of my understanding, I just pray right now to receive your gift of forgiveness and mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. That today and now he would be my Lord and Savior. And that my life, as your word tells me, will be different from this day forward. Born again by the will of God and not by human effort. I'll leave this place and walk in a manner that's worthy of my calling. I'll worship you and praise you for the wonderful God that you are. God, I pray for those of us who have trusted in Christ but have become blind once again by the disobedience of our hearts that are filled with sin, that we've become cold and callous to your love, that you would open the eyes of our hearts today to confess our sin. And we know that when we do, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we'll begin to walk in a manner once again pleasing to you, that we'll be used by you to expand your kingdom and glorify your name. And when we just thank you, that you hear our prayers, we thank you that you ask, what is it you want me to do? God, I want you to forgive my sins. In Jesus' name, amen.